Amen. You may be seated this morning, and that's definitely worth clapping about. Praise God today that we can have peace in our heart and our life, regardless of what's going on, because we know what Jesus has accomplished for us through His life, His death, and His resurrection. We are glad that you are with us today. Uh, If you're one of those who are at home watching us online, we're definitely glad that you are joining us as well and hope that you're going to be feeling well, uh, that your health will be restored soon and shortly uh, so you can come and be a part of us here in body. Uh, While we thank God for the technology that allows us to meet together when some are sick or not able to be here, we also know that church goes far beyond just singing or just watching a service online. There's something special about the people of God being able to gather together in person, worship to make much of the name of Jesus, and we thank God for the opportunity uh, to be in this place today. If you have your Bible this morning, let's open it up to Galatians chapter 5, and if you want to put your finger there and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be there in just a moment together. Uh, Just to kind of give you a bit of a refresher, if you're new to us or if you have been gone from us for a while, we have been working through the Gospel of Luke together, and so systematically we've been looking at who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what He's accomplished as Luke records that, proving to us that Jesus is indeed that promised Messiah that God promised would come and would right all the wrongs of sin in the world. As we looked at Luke chapter 8, we're looking at a passage where Jesus was telling His uh, his followers, those who are listening in the crowds, to be very careful about how they hear when the Word of God is being proclaimed, because there's a variety of different responses that can come to that, but only one of them is going to hear it with a sincere heart, with a genuine heart, and as such, receive it in a way that it produces fruit in the life of a believer. And so as we've talked about fruit, what we've been talking about is that fruit is the evidence that we indeed have believed and trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as we as a church believe is important in discipleship, is evidence that we know Jesus, that we're following Jesus, and ultimately that we're becoming like Jesus. And so if you and I are to ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to become like Jesus? The Bible is going to give us some pictures of what kind of spiritual fruit is going to be produced by the Spirit of God in our lives. And what we see is a beautiful picture of these things represented in the life of Jesus himself, but now things that are manifest in our life, these qualities and virtues that prove that we are indeed a follower of the Lord Jesus. And so in Galatians chapter 5, we have this list that the Apostle Paul gives us, and we've been looking so far at the first two, which is love and joy, and this week we're going to look at the third one. So let's look at this list together in verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, excuse me, patience, kindness, peace is like a peach, but it's a little bit more... uh, Nice in the way you say it, a little more elegant. Uh, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so these are the things that we're asking God. God, would you produce these virtues in us? God, we want to be more like Jesus. And so we know we're becoming like Jesus when love is evident in our life. We look vertically at that love for God that because we know that He's loved us and sent Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We now in turn love Him. But Jesus said, the world's going to know you're my disciples when you love each other. 
We looked last week at joy, how it differs from happiness, that while happiness is so based upon our circumstances and what's happening in our life, there's this abiding deep joy that is able to be present regardless of circumstances because we know who Jesus is, we know what Jesus has done, we have the promise, the hope of heaven, we've received his lavish, abundant grace in our life. And so now the believer, as we saw the Apostle Paul in, the, in his writing to Philippians, is able to rejoice in the Lord always. We'll say it again, rejoice. Now today we're going to look at one of these virtues, one of these fruit that all of us desperately want, yet if we're being honest, we probably struggle to have. We're going to look at what it means to have true abiding peace in our heart and life. And so in order for us to do that, we need to really understand what peace is. Now, for many of us, we would just be okay with the absence of conflict in our life. And so for many of us in the room today, if you were just to say, you know what, if you could get rid of that conflict, if you could just get rid of the chaos, I would just be okay with that. The reality is that biblical peace goes far beyond just the idea of the absence of conflict. It's something far deeper, far more meaningful, far more purposeful in our heart and life. For instance, for some of us today experienced a little bit of conflict on the way out the door just trying to get to church, right? And so the kids wouldn't do what you wanted them to do. Your spouse was probably running late like they always seem to do. And while you wanted to get to church for something good in your life, the entire trip over here was anything but that. You would just say it was one big ball of conflict and chaos, and you would just settle for a truce, right? You would just settle for that to be gone. No more kids bickering, no more kids crying, no more arguing with your spouse, no more problems at work. You would just be okay with a bit of a ceasefire. But what we want to understand today is that God wants more than just a ceasefire in your life. He wants an abiding sense of peace that permeates your entire being and your entire life. Matter of fact, if we were to look at the word peace as it is described in the Bible, the definition would be one of harmony, it would be one of whole being, it would be one of something that speaks always in the context of our relationships with other people. And so I think you and I down in our deep core would say, man, wouldn't that be nice that if I was just able to have a sense of harmony in my life, that there was a sense of well-being present, that if the relationships in my life were one that I could express as unified and harmonious, what a wonderful thing that would be. And the Greek word that we get for peace really finds its root in the Hebrew word, which you probably heard before, shalom. It's just this idea of this sense of inner being, of peace and harmony. And the reason that the Hebrews believed in that is because they understood that the creation as God had made it was one of peace and well-being. Matter of fact, if you were to go back to the beginning of the Bible and take a look at how God designed things to be from the very beginning, as he puts Adam and Eve in the midst of this paradise, and when he's done with everything that he's created, he steps back and says, it is good. Everything is right. Everything is functioning in rhythm. It's functioning in harmony. There's a sense of well-being. And so all of the problems that you and I know exist in the world today were not present. I want you just to try to maybe for a moment baffle your mind by thinking what that would be like. Think for a moment of what it would be like that between the man and the woman, there was no friction, there was no argument, there was no uh, uh, embarrassment, there was no shame, but that, re that relationship was functioning just in a very perfect way. 
I want you to think about the relationship that the man and the woman had with their creator, that, that there was no lack of desire to know him and spend time with him. There was no barrier in the fellowship that they had, but they were able just to commune and enjoy the presence of God every moment, day in and day out. I want you to think about the beauty of the creation, everything functioning in a way that it was designed to. Inevitably, one of us have watched, or many of us have watched National Geographic before, right? If you ever watch National Geographic, it's really just a sad show to watch. Matter of fact, my wife won't watch it at all because inevitably something dies in it, right? I mean, so there's this little antelope that walks by the water, this little gazelle, and there he just is for a moment just lapping up water and everything seems fine and seems right. And all of a sudden, a crocodile just grabs it and drags it into the water. And my wife's like, why do you all watch this? Change the channel. I don't want to see it. Or sadly enough, there's this little gazelle that gets stranded from the rest of the herd. And before long, a pack of hyenas are surrounding it. And the reason I point that out is to say, we can look at the world and here's what we come up with. Something isn't right. That's not right that that happens. Now, we know that they need it for food. We know all of that. But here's what we say. That's not harmony. That's not peace. That's not well-being. Yet the Bible tells us at the very beginning of creation, that's exactly what existed. Perfect harmony, perfect well-being, shalom was ever present. Now, the people of Israel long for that, right? They, they desire that, and so they would wish it upon one another. They would say, shalom, peace be with you. We hope that you experience peace in life. And one of the things that they were longing and looking for was a Messiah that was going to come and restore peace and harmony in life. Matter of fact, there's a reason that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is referenced as what? The Prince of Peace. And so there's going to be this king, there's going to be this ruler who's going to come, and not only is he going to restore all that's right, but he's going to lead the people in a sense of peace and harmony and prosperity, putting things back the way they should be. Now, the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is this, why is there an absence of peace in the world? Why is it that even between a husband and wife who have committed themselves to marriage and to a life with one another constantly experience a lack of peace? Why is it that those children that you've brought into the world that you love and that you care for and that you want good things for, you constantly find yourselves at odds with them and then at odds at one another? Why is it that everywhere you go, in every place that you see people in, there's anything but ultimately a lack of well-being, a lack of harmony, but at the end of the day, we know that there's problems rooted in everything and in everyone we know. And the Bible would give us an answer to that in Genesis chapter 3, when it explains that when the, Adam, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel and sin against God, in an instant, everything was tainted. Everything that was good is now no longer good, that sin has found a way to mark everything. And so how do we see that? Well, first of all, we know that the man and the woman, rather than looking forward to seeing God, now run and hide from him, right? There's a severance of relationship there. That before they would long for that moment when God would come and manifest himself in a way that he would walk with them in the garden. And now here he comes and what is their inclination? Let's not run to God, let's run from God and hide. 
All of a sudden now we see that the man and woman were naked. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed prior to that moment. They were completely open with one another. had nothing to fear from one another. But all of a sudden now there was this sense of marring on them to where they wanted coverings from one another. And when God asked them what happens, what's the first thing that they do? They turn on one another, begin to blame something or someone for the problem that now exists in their life. You follow the narrative just a few chapters, what you're going to find is that it's just one generation later when two brothers turn on one another, one killing the other, and then the whole impact of man from that point in time is one of violence, of strife, of calamity, of chaos, to the point that when we reach the middle of Genesis, we see that God is grieved that He even made man because the world has become such a wicked, evil place that He now decides to wipe it out aside from one family and start back over. Why is that? Because of the reality in the root of sin. Sin is the barrier to peace. Sin is the destroyer of peace. And here's what I don't have to convince you of. There are a lot of things in your life that should be right that just simply aren't. There are a lot of things in your life, no matter how bad you want them to be right, no matter how hard you try to make them right, just aren't right. Why? Because there is a constant reflection and reminder of the effect of sin in the world in which we live. And so here's what we come to the reality of, that peace for mankind, as much as we might want it, is not possible on our own. Mankind has never found a way to bring about a sense of shalom, a sense of peace in the world today. Now, have we had truces? Sure we have. Have we had ceasefires? Inevitably. But we've never found a way to truly have harmony in our lives and in our relationships with other people. And so what we're going to look at today is that God and His grace is going to make it possible for us to have peace, but it's going to come differently than what we think it's going to. And so in order for us to have true, lasting peace in the way that the Bible says, I think there's three categories we need to define it in. Number one is this, we're going to have to have upward peace. Number two, we're going to have to have inner peace. And then thirdly, we're going to have to have outward peace. And so if we think of it in this way, there needs to be a peace that we're able to have with God. There needs to be a peace that we're now going to be able to have within ourselves. And then finally, there needs to be a peace that we're going to be able to have with other people. And Ephesians chapter 2 is probably the place that I would point you to see this in a nutshell. Now, there's a variety of places in the Bible that are going to speak to it and allude to it. But if there is a book of the Bible that I love to go to and read often, it's the book of Ephesians. And here's why. In the first three chapters, we just get good gospel theology. We just get this good reminder of who God is, what God is doing in our life according to His abundant mercy and grace. We get this beautiful picture reminding us of who we used to be because of our sin, but what God has done. And so for three chapters, He just gives us good, solid gospel theology. Then in the last three chapters, what He does is says, this is how this theology shapes the way that you live. So he's going to talk about relationships between husbands and wives. He's going to talk about relationships between parents and children. He's going to talk about relationships just amongst the brotherhood and the brethren. He's going to remind us that we're to walk worthy of the calling that's been placed in our life. He's going to tell us about the spiritual battles and the struggles that we fight day in and day out. So we're to gird ourselves up and be prepared for that. And so really, if you want to see the Christian life in a very short, contained book of the Bible, I would point you in the direction of Ephesians, because this is really what the Christian life looks like and is in a, in, a, in a microcosm. 
But in Ephesians chapter 2, which again is one of my most favorite chapters in the Bible because it's just such a clear, concise picture of what the gospel is and does, this is what Paul starts off by reminding us. And you, talking to the believers at this point in time, were, past tense, not current, present tense, but, but past tense, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now just to stop there for a moment, he's taking them back and saying, you need to remember where you've come from. There was a time in your life that you were dead. That word there speaks to spiritual death. So he's not just talking physical, although we know that spiritual death results in physical death. He's saying, spiritually speaking, past tense, you were dead. Why? Because of your trespasses. These are the outward acts of rebellion that you've committed. Basically saying you've willfully rebelled and gone against the grain of what God has told you to do. But also because of your sins. This is a broader word that simply means you failed to meet God's standard. Why have we failed to meet God's standard? Part of it's willfully. The other part of it is by nature, I can't meet God's standard. I came into this world broken. I came into this world twisted. I came into this world with some problems that I can't explain other than there's something wrong with me. And so he says, remember, this is who you used to be in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world. Now, whenever the Bible says the ways of this world, it's always referencing a way of life counter opposite of the way of God. And so when the Bible talks about, well, this is the way that the world operates, it's saying this is the way that the world functions, and it goes against the grain of how God says things are to work and what it does. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Now think about this for a moment because the Bible has told us that Satan has been allowed a time where he is active in the world. He's at work in the world. In some ways, he's been given some control, a measure of it, not full control over what's happening in the world. And so this is a very bleak picture that Paul is painting for you and I. And it's one that we don't like to hear, but one we need to be reminded of. I willfully act in rebellion to God. By nature, I'm broken and go against what God says. I follow the ways of this world which are contrary to God. I even follow the ways of Lucifer, the wicked one who rebelled and led other angels to rebel against God. And then in verse 3, we too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. So it's not just the devil made me do it. It's not just, well, God, if you wouldn't have put me around all these bad people, I wouldn't have done it. He says, no, we're also acting according to what's inside of us, our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. Now look at this. And we're by nature children of wrath as others were also. So what is the result of our rebellion, our sinfulness, our brokenness? It's enmity between us and God. God now, the righteous ruler, has looked upon us and what we've done and found us guilty of treason in the highest order and has now said, here is the punishment that exists for you, wrath and eternal damnation. Now instantly, some of us right now says, isn't that a little extreme? I mean, isn't it a little harsh that, that let's just say I live 80 years on this earth, and let's just say all of those 80 years were, were bad, but God's going to sentence me to eternal damnation for 80 years of not doing what's right? I mean, after all, I did a few good things while I was there. Well, what we need to understand is what punishment fits crime, right? 
I mean, we understand in our penal system that, that there is a different punishment for stealing than there is for murder. Why? Because there is right punishment assessed for certain levels of, of crime that we commit. And here's what you need to understand, and I need to grasp, our sin is of the highest order of evil. We have looked at the good, all-knowing, perfect creator and said, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, we don't want you, we don't need you, we'll take your stuff and you just go on your way. Now you might say, well, I've never said that, but let me just tell you this, your actions prove it regularly. Anytime you sin and go against the grain of what God says, here's what you're saying, God, I know better than you. God, I know what will make me happier than you know what will make me happy. God, I know better for my life than you know better for my life. And there's inevitably a point by which we look at the laws of God and we don't like them and we say all together, God, we just wish you weren't here because you're in the way of our happiness. It's the story of the prodigal son, right? And so what is God going to do in response to that? Well, rightfully, he is going to bear down his wrath upon that. And the Bible makes it very clear that there is a day of judgment that will come and the world will give account to God for how they've lived and what they've done. And at that time, he will dole out proper punishment for that sin. But here's a caveat in this. And in verse four, it says this, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. Now look at the emphasis he's putting there. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you have been saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So while this is who we were, this is what our life is like apart from Christ, God steps in and says, while you deserve wrath, I'm going to do something that enables you to have life. While you're spiritually dead, if you'll turn and trust in the redemptive work of my son, Jesus Christ, by my grace that I'm given to you, if you'll but believe and trust in him, while you are dead, you can be made alive. While you deserve death and punishment, I can now restore you to myself. Now you might say, well, what on earth? That, that's great. What on earth does it have to do with peace? Here it is. You will never have lasting peace until your sin is dealt with and your relationship with God is restored. There's no peace apart from that. And so no matter how hard you try, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many ways you find to meditate and find a zen-like state, no matter how many times you read chicken soup for the soul, here's what I'm telling you, there is no lasting peace that's going to come from that. Why? Because those things in and of themselves do not deal with your root problem. Sin has severed your relationship with God. Now, you might ask the question, well, how does Jesus accomplish that for me? And so, so go with me to Romans chapter 5, and, and we're going to see that Paul's going to state it a little more clearly there and by telling us how what Jesus has done is going to bring about our peace. So look at what he says here in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, now, now what does that mean, being declared righteous? It means that even though we're not righteous, as we've explained already, that God has looked upon what Jesus has done, and now in our stead, we've been declared righteous even though we're not. 
Why? Because what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection is enough for God to look upon that and say, you now are righteous by faith in him. First, the second part of this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so here's how peace is going to come. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now jump on down with me at verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous or justified by his blood, will we be saved through him and from his wrath? For if while we were enemies, look at this, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, how then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received His reconciliation. So Paul is making the argument that because of what Jesus has done for us through His atoning work upon the cross, that God has now looked upon what He has done for us, and for those of us who believe, have faith in Him, will now be credited, counted as righteousness, even though we're not. And now what's enabled to be transpire is now we're no longer under God's wrath, but now there's a restoration of, re- of re- reconciliation, a relationship that has taken place, and now we are able to have peace with God because our sin debt has been paid, the power of sin has been broken, and our relationship with God has been restored. Now, how do we have peace? We have peace by trusting in Jesus and knowing that now the relationship with God that sin severed has now been made right. And this is the only way that you're going to have abiding, lasting peace because now you've been reconciled to your Creator. So let me just say this to you. Because some of you have looked in every other caveat you can find in the world trying to find lasting peace, and it's to no avail. And and let me just tell you this, it is a grace of God that He does not allow you to have peace in other things. Because it is, by by you not finding it, you continue to search for it. I, I love how the Bible tells us that God has subjected the creation to futility and hope. What does that mean? That that, that God has allowed us to experience the futility of this world. Why? Because when it will not satisfy us, we keep looking for something else. And the hope is that we will keep looking till we find the answer rooted in Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we now are able to have true, lasting peace because our relationship with God's been restored. Now, here's the second thing. Once we have upward peace, we now begin to have inward peace. Now, I think all of us would love to have a life free of stress, free of anxiety, free of fear, free of worry, free of doubt. And you're like, that's just a pipe dream. That's not possible. And while I would tell you that knowing God doesn't just instantly make all of your problems go away, the Bible tells us this, that there is a peace that passes all understanding that's able to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Philippians 4, 7. So when you think about the the picture of that, right? There is a peace now that's available, an inward sense of harmony, well-being, oneness, completeness, 
that passes all understanding, which means that even though the world around me seems to be falling apart, it's, it's just not reasonable to the world's eyes that I would have peace, yet somehow I'm able to have it. Here's why. Because God is guarding. That, that picture there is of a military group uh, protecting a stronghold. And so if you will, that they've got a city, they've got a fort, and, and the military has now gathered around it. They're protecting it so it can be safe. So whoever's inside that stronghold, here's what they know. I don't have to fear. I don't have to worry what our enemies are going to do because I'm protected. I'm safe in that. And so God is going to guard, protect our hearts and our minds, our, our inside, in Jesus Christ. That's a picture of the inner peace that we're now able to have. Now, now why, why is that? How, how do I know that? Well, it's because this, there is now no condemnation, Romans 8, for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So I no longer have to fear wrath. I no longer have to feel, fear the penalty of my sin. I know the power of sin is broken, but I think there's some other things that allow that peace. And, and just write these down for you to think upon later this week. I, I think one of the reasons that the gospel enables us to have peace is here's what it constantly reminds us of. I'm loved by God. Now, that might sound very shallow and surface level, but that is a well that runs very deep because one of the things that you and I desire and long for, whether we want to admit it or not, is to be accepted and to be loved. Matter of fact, I would tell you that we make many decisions in this life out of a fear of not being accepted or loved by someone. There are many secrets that we hold deep inside. Why? Because we're afraid if someone knew that about us, they wouldn't accept us or love us anymore. There is a reason why we become masters of disguise in our life and from a very early age learn how to play the game of hiding behind different layers and different masks that we want to wear. It's why many of us are so good at being a different type of person with, with, with whatever group we're around. Why? Because we're afraid if the truth about who we are gets out, no one's going to accept us or love us. But here's what the beauty of the gospel says as God looks upon you and says, oh, I know everything about you. I know words before they come off your tongue. I know thoughts before you have them. I know your actions and what you've done. There's nothing that's hidden from my sight. In one way, that is simply terrifying, is it not? In one way, it is simply terrifying to know that the ruler and judge of all creation looks at you and says, I know everything you've done. I know everything you will do. I've known it before you ever did it. I know your thoughts. I know your intentions. I know your actions. I even know when you do good things for the wrong reason. That's a terrifying thought. Yet at the same time, this God looks upon you and says, but I want you to know that I love you anyway, and I provided a way for all of that wrong to be dealt with, and for now you to be reconciled unto myself. And I want you to know with all of your past baggage and all of your future mistakes, I love you and I'm secure. You're secure in me. Man, you can have peace in that, right? Many of us do not have peace in our marriage relationships because we're terrified that if our spouse gets to know us better, they might bounce on us, right? There is some security in knowing that when you and your spouse made a commitment on that day of your wedding till death do us part, you, you both meant it. There's a security that I have with my wife knowing that me, her and I are committed to one another for the rest of our lives. And while there are some things that you could do to destroy that relationship, there's a security to know that she loves me the way that I am, and I love her, and we're not just going to bounce on one another the first time it gets a little bit difficult or a little bit hard. 
It allows an openness. It allows intimacy. And if you don't have that in a marriage, guess what? There's a reason why there's a lack of closeness because if you're always hiding from one another, not being honest from one another, there's no room for genuine intimacy in that. But having the security with one another says, all right, we can be open, we can grow, we can experience closeness because we trust one another. And when God looks upon you in the state that you're in, knowing everything that you do and says, hey, you need to know this, I love you and I accept you in my son Jesus Christ, there's great peace that comes from that. There's a peace that says, even though my heart and my flesh may fail, my Lord is my strength and my portion forever. There's a peace that says, even though everyone else might turn against me, I know I'm okay because I still have the Lord. There's a peace that comes with that. Secondly, there's a peace that comes from knowing that I've been chosen by God. As you read through the first part of Ephesians chapter 1, what you're going to see is some very strong language. Paul reminding the church that it's not you that chose God, it's God that chose you. Jesus told his disciples that very same thing. And it's not to say that we don't have a choice. It's not to say that we don't make choices in the world, because clearly we do. It's just saying this, that that our salvation didn't begin by us making a choice. It began because God chose to reveal himself to us and was at work in our hearts and lives. And if that bothers you, you're going to have a lot of problem with the Bible. Because the Bible over and over again just speaks to this reality that, that God has chosen to call us unto himself. And while we clearly have faith and we clearly exercise some form of will in the matter, ultimately we have a security to know what? My relationship with God doesn't hinge on me and my ability. My relationship with God hinges solely on the fact that He loves me, that He's chosen me, that He's called me unto myself and holds me tight in His hand. And that's why regardless of the mistakes I make, I have security in Him, not because of me, but because I rest in His grace. And so today we can have peace because God looked at us and says, I've loved you, I've chosen you, I've called you unto myself. Here's the third reason you and I can have peace is because if we are indeed God's child, we have rested our hands in the life of the almighty sovereign over all creation. There is much comfort in resting in this reality that God is sovereign over the events that are transpiring in the world today. God did not breathe this creation into existence and just roll it out there and say, let's just see what happens. No, God is actively at work in everything that is going on in the world today. If you don't believe that, then you have no hope. Because what have you ever seen in the life of human beings that would allow you to believe that anything good will come from this? I mean, if God really has just left it up to you and, to you and me, What have we ever seen in the history of mankind that leads us to believe anything good will ever ultimately come from things that men have done? Matter of fact, we've got centuries and millennia of the opposite to tell us that whenever men get involved, they break things. You want to know why most of us in the room would just say we wish the government would leave us alone? Because we know that everything they touch, they break, right? We just know it's how it works. And that's not a political statement. That's just like a real statement. Like, like, they can't even get mail out right, right? I mean, like, they take all the money you can, and UPS and FedEx, they can somehow get you your package on time with a tracking number, and you take it to the post office, and and they don't even know where it is half the time, right? It doesn't show up when it's supposed to, uh, and that's not picking on them. It's just to say, what have we ever looked at mankind and said, yeah, we can get it right, 
And so if you don't believe that God is sovereign over creation, then let me just tell you this, that might explain why you have no hope in the world, no peace in the world, and nothing to think that anything will ever be better, but if you rest your life in the hands of the almighty sovereign God of all creation. Let me tell you what that means. It doesn't mean your problems go away. It doesn't mean you wake up tomorrow and poof, it's just, it just happened, and all of a sudden life just gets easy but it means you have peace in the middle of it. Why? Because you know that God is at work and because He loves you and because He's purchased you by the blood of His Son and adopted you as His child, whatever rests on the other side of that will ultimately be okay because He's working for your good. Now here's the final thing. Upward peace, inward peace, and now it's going to lead to outward peace. Look at verse 11 of Ephesians 2. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. Now, the word, word Gentile, is a, Gentile is a very broad word in, in, in the Bible. Basically, it speaks to any people group outside the covenant people of God and the people of Israel. And so he's saying, remember, at one time you belonged to a group of people who were alienated, ostracized from the covenant people of God. Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise. Look at this, without hope and without God in the world. So he just continues like with this brush to paint a reminder of the bleakness of our state before Jesus Christ. But now, so it's the second time he's going to use the strong but, so something's changing, transitioning here. In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at this. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body. Jump on with me now down to verse 19. So then you are no longer foreigners, strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So here's what he says, you know that at one time great dividing walls existed between people. But now in Christ Jesus, those walls have been broken down, they've been torn down, so while hostility used to exist between people and nations and differences of background and ethnicity, all of those things have been eliminated, and now God is able to reconcile both groups together, creating one new people in and through Jesus Christ. New Testament, what do we call that? We call it the church, right? And one of the things that we celebrate in the life of the church regularly is the fact that we all come with different backgrounds, different ways of thinking, yet somehow God is able to supernaturally bring us together, give us the same heart, the same mind, a unity of faith, and He does it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here's why we believe that a marriage on the rocks has hope, because God is able to unite people in the gospel. There's a reason why we believe families that are being torn apart, there's a hope that they can be reconciled and brought back together. Why? We believe in the hope of the gospel. 
There's a reason why a relationship with parents and their teenagers that seems fractured beyond all belief, where that teenager just thinks in their mind, I can't wait till I get out of here and get away from you and get to live life on my own terms. We believe that there's a chance for that to change and there's a hope. Why? We believe in the truth of the gospel. There's a reason why we believe even in the life of the church, while we're supposed to be one, so many times we're not one, we believe that God can do a supernatural work of uniting us together. Why? We believe in the hope of the gospel. There's a reason why we believe that racial tension and all the wickedness and evil of all the divisions that we see in the world can be not, is because we believe in the hope of the gospel. Because we believe if there's peace upward, then there's peace inward. Now there can be peace outward. Don't you find it interesting in the book of James, and I go back to this regularly because sometimes I just have to check myself, when James says, what is the reason for the quarrels and the fights among you? Now, if you were to ask that, you know what all of us would say? We would point a finger at the person that we have a quarrel with, right? If I were to say, why is it that you and your wife don't get along? You'd say, well, let me tell you what she does. How come you can't get along with your kids? Well, let me tell you about what they don't do. Why do you always have problems with your coworkers? Because they just won't leave my stuff alone. We could go down and down that, but James doesn't do that. He says, is it not because your passions wage war within your own soul? Don't you sometimes just dislike it when the Bible does that to you, right? Kind of like sets you up and you're ready to give an answer and then it just turns on you and says, oh, look inside. The only way we're going to have peace with other people is not for them to get their act together. Is when we're right with God and right inside. And now there's room for us to have peace with other people. You see, your peace with other people, as Paul would say, as long as it depends on you, seek to live peaceably with others, right? So there's some things people can do that will enable you not to live at peace, but here's what the Christian should do. As much as you can, you seek to live peaceably with them. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Blessed are the peacemakers. And you want to know what I find in the life of many Christians? We're far more meddlers and troublemakers than we are peacemakers. Do you want to know that it seems that most of the time on social media that that Christians are just as engaged in ugly, spiteful, hateful talk in relationships with other people as non-believers are? Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Not blessed are the troublemakers. And I think sometimes we need to stop and evaluate, all right, if I have peace with God and peace within, why do I have such little peace with others? And can I just tell you the common denominator and that will always be you? I don't know why everywhere I go, I always have problems. Can I help you out lovingly as your pastor? Because you're a jerk. (laughs) Just why? 
You know, I've told you before, if you run into one jerk in a day, that guy might be a jerk. If you run into jerks all day long, you're probably a jerk. I mean, if everywhere you go, you got problems, maybe it's because you're not a peacemaker. Maybe it's because you're not striving to live peaceably with everyone. If you're not striving to live peaceably with everyone, maybe it's because you don't have peace inside. If you don't have peace inside, maybe it's because you don't have peace vertically or you've forgotten about what vertical peace is and what it should look like. And so Jesus came that we might have peace. And let me tell you this, when we're walking in the Spirit, peace will be present in our life. Not the absence of problems, but peace in the midst of it. Not the absence of struggle, but trust in that God is at work even in our struggles and is growing us in our struggles. Not a lack of problems with others, but somehow an ability for us to strive to make peace even in situations where it seems impossible. I want you to bow your heads for a moment. Do you have peace? Peace is not a suggestion in the Bible. It is a reality of those who are walking with the Spirit. And so lovingly, I would tell us to evaluate ourselves in this reality. If there is a chronic lack of peace, then there's probably a lack of walking in the Spirit. there's probably a lack of our remembering the gospel. What the gospel's done and what the gospel is doing. And so some of you in the room, man, your life has just been a constant lack of peace and, and you've looked everywhere. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going to a counselor. I'm not saying there's wrong with medication. So don't you dare hear that because God, those are graces that God gives us. But, but you've tried every avenue that you can think of in the world and it's just, it's just there. And the one place you haven't turned is to who our peace truly is, Jesus Christ. And today He's beckoning you and saying, I'm not promising you all your problems are going to go away but I'm promising you, you won't be alone in them. And I'm promising you that the one true problem that you have and that you face, by not being reconciled to your Creator, I came to make that a reality. And I'm promising that if you'll surrender to me and walk by my Spirit who comes into you when you trust in me, you can have peace. Some of us today just need to pause and say, God, I'm sorry, I, I forgot the gospel. And there's a lack of peace in my life today because I need to be reminded, you love me, you've chosen me, you're at work, you've called me. And so today I can have peace because of those realities. Some of you, God's just looked at you and said lovingly, quit being a troublemaker. Quit being an instigator. You're supposed to be seeking to live peaceably with everyone. You're called to be a peacemaker in the world. Quit being a problem everywhere you go. And so today as we pray, the Spirit of God is going to lead us to, to surrender on, on, on a thousand levels today. But He's going to speak specifically to you. And our hope today is that you would just respond to what He's calling you to do.
If it's to place your faith and trust in Jesus, that you would do that. If it's to repent of sin, that you would do that. If it's to just cry out and say, God, all right, I get it. I need inner peace and I need to be at peace with others. Then do that. There will be those waiting at the front. The altar's open for you to pray. We have people at the back. If you feel more comfortable going that way, talking to others. If you've made a decision today that you don't feel comfortable talking with someone here about, but you want to write it on a card so we can follow up with you this week, we will do that. Our hope is just this. Listen and obey to what God's calling you to. Father, would you bring peace in us through your Son, Jesus Christ? Father, today may we feel the clear presence of your Spirit and know that you're at work. We love you and thank you for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.